It's always a joy to be with you. We uh, greatly enjoy uh, the fellowship uh, that uh, we have with you as uh, fellow saints. Um, we're going to be looking at the book of Galatians, both uh, morning and evening. This morning I'll be looking at Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. This evening I'll be seeking to give an overview and introduction of the entire book. Uh, but before that, uh, I want to just say I've always enjoyed uh, the publications here at uh, Claremont. Those of us that uh, come and visit, uh, you know, borrow your publications and, and try to upgrade our publications to make them um, at least uh, uh, similar. Uh, but I wanted to exegete uh, one of the announcements here regarding the Claremont Street Fair. It says, looking for fun people to help. I don't know if you read the bulletin very carefully, uh, but those of us that exposit scripture always read every word carefully. So uh, I was wondering what constitutes a fun person in order to be able to help at the Claremont Street Fair. But I think, I think you probably have plenty of fun people here and you will be able to uh, find the help that you need to help with the fair there. Wonderful outreach uh, in the community. We were talking about it yesterday at uh, the men's barbecue. Uh, what you all have done uh, with the men's barbecue here in Southern California has been a blessing to all of the Southern California assemblies, and we're very uh, grateful for sharing that with us at Grace Bible Chapel and now the Buena Park uh, Christian Fellowship. I think we had like 79 people out again uh, yesterday morning to get 79 men in one place among the assemblies in Southern California on a Saturday morning is phenomenal, and it was a great blessing of, of fellowship. So uh, thank you for your leadership and your kindness and, and generosity in doing that for us. We'll look at uh, the book of Galatians, uh, chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 10 this morning. Uh, let's read the 10 verses, and then we'll look at them more carefully. Galatians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I'm still 
pleased, for if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. If you're not very familiar with the book of Galatians, it is one of the earliest books uh, or letters written in the New Testament. It was written in approximately 49 AD before the Acts 15 uh, Jerusalem Council. These churches, which Paul writes, were founded on his first missionary journey. Uh, they are the cities of Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Paul writes in a more harsh tone in this letter than you're used to reading. If you've read some of his other epistles, you realize there's a sense of warmth, a sense of uh, comfort and gentleness in the way in which he writes. Uh, you can sense the stern tone in the way in which the letter opens. In fact, could I go so far as to say he's angry because he can't believe that these people that he himself led to Christ and with whom he explains such a simple gospel by grace have become so quickly deluded by Judaizers who have come and lied to them as to the requirements of the gospel. What is a Judaizer? A Judaizer was from the Jerusalem area, a Jewish person who had thought that he had converted to Christianity as if Christianity were the latest form of Judaism. In the Old Testament, if you were some sort of God-fearer and wanted to find out about the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, as you came to the Jews and God placed them on the intersection of three continents, uh, you would come to them as a proselyte and they would explain to you God's revelation to them, his chosen people, and the law that he had given to them to explain how they were to late to him and to show their desire to please God. And so you would, in a sense, come to God through Judaism. In the New Testament, when Christ came, as he ex explained that he had fulfilled the law and that he was now speaking of new relationship with God, they would come through a new covenant. In fact, that's what this book is like. It has an old covenant and a new covenant, an Old Testament and a New Testament. In this New Testament or this new covenant, he says that he has actually forgiven our sins, not just covered our sins, taken our sins out of the way, that he has actually offered us the gift of the Holy Spirit that he would place his spirit in us permanently. Not just some people sometimes for some special action such as, let's say, artisans of the temple to build the temple. No, every believer, even the less significant ones, even the children would receive the Holy Spirit permanently within them. He said those Jews in the Old Testament trying to keep the law to earn favor with God had hearts of stone and they couldn't even remember his law. He says, I will write it on your hearts. I will give you a soft heart towards me, a heart of flesh. I will change you and cause you to walk in my statutes. These Jews 
in the New Testament era from Jerusalem, who were referred to as Judaizers, thought that the newfangled version of Judaism was Christianity, and they thought they were converting to Christianity by adding Christianity as a tack-on to their Judaism. But they had perverted the essence of Christianity, which is salvation by grace through faith apart from works. And they thought the Apostle Paul was teaching what we today would call easy believism, that you accept God's gift of salvation that was achieved by Jesus Christ as a free gift. By believing in him, you can have your sins forgiven. And so they actually followed Paul around. And after he had quickly planted churches and moved on to the next place and the next place and the next place, they went after his churches and came after Paul saying, we are from James of Jerusalem, the mother church. James did not send these men out. James had the same gospel as Paul. But they were lying about who they were and why they were there. And they were saying, Paul is not teaching you the truth. Paul's not even a real apostle. You must keep the law in order to be saved. And you must take upon yourself circumcision, and you must obey the dietary restrictions of the laws of Moses. How many of us have ever kept the law perfectly enough to have earned favor with God to the point that he would be motivated to save us? The answer is a simple one, zero. No one ever has kept the law perfectly. No one has ever succeeded in motivating God to forgive their sins on the basis of how well they have performed in keeping the law. And regarding circumcision, if you read in these New Testament books about these so-called God-fearers that hung out in the Jewish-oriented synagogues but were not converts to Judaism was because they had no desire as adults to be circumcised. So they were loosely affiliated as God-fearers. And the Gentiles had no interest in keeping the dietary restrictions of the laws of Moses. And yet, as gullible as these new Christians were, when the Judaizers came, they began to think that, well, maybe they're right. Maybe we haven't done enough. Maybe we should start doing these things. Maybe we just didn't hear the whole story. And they were beginning to become deluded by the lies that were told to them. We'll find out deeper into the book that they knew what they were doing. They knew that they were lying. And their actual motivation was to control people and dominate people and boast in their ability to control these people. And you would say, are there people like that that want to control other people and then boast about their ability to control them? Are there people that find fulfillment in dominating other people? Think about it for a moment, and you'll say to yourself, there are people who know that they're lying to you. There are people who know that they're deceiving. There are people who would do that because they love to control other people. 
And Paul, in such frustration, writes back to young believers saying, you know the gospel I taught you is the truth because you believed it and were saved. You've actually seen the change done in you by the work of the Holy Spirit. So how is it when a bunch of liars come to you and tell you something that is not true, you would be so quick to go AWOL, to desert Jesus Christ and believe a gospel of works. I'll tell you the reason. Human beings don't like grace. Human beings want to pay their own way. It's our nature. We think that we should have to contribute. We think that we ought to contribute. It is humbling for us to admit that we can't do anything to motivate God to save us, can't do anything to contribute to our salvation, can't do anything to earn his favor, and that it is completely, entirely been done by Jesus Christ on the cross. If we were to invent a religion, we would invent it on the basis of us saving ourselves by what we do. Look at every world religion. Do comparative world religions, and you will see that every world religion has us sacrificing, has us improving ourselves in order to merit the favor of the salvation in that religion. It is unique in the faith taught in the scripture that God has done it all and he offers it to us as a gift. I was reared in Southern California. That meant when we studied history, we, we studied the Aztecs and the Mayans, that we studied the missions here in California. We did all of that kind of stuff. As a young man, I was down in Mexico City and I went to the Anthropological Museum and I was going through the Aztec section about what they believed and I had known about uh, their religion that they were trying to appease their God by sacrificing to that God what they believed was their very best and that they would take a young virgin girl and while she was still alive, cut out her heart and place it on an altar while the heart was still trying to beat. What was shocking to me is I was standing there in this museum studying their religion, and I saw the instrument in which the heart was placed. It looked, it was carved of stone. It looked like a jackal uh, with a head, and the, the legs were behind it. So the jackal was upside down in one sense with the legs behind it and the belly facing up and the belly was carved out into a bowl. And I'm reading with my own eyes that this is the instrument in which they placed the beating heart. It's one thing to read about it in a history book. It's a whole other thing to stand and look at the artifact of human sacrifice and say, this is the best that we as humans come up with. We come up with 
I'll give you my very best. I will sacrifice for you. I will solve this problem between you and us, and then you will send us rain and our crops will grow. Your anger towards us will be appeased. We can't kill ourselves to please God. God is the one who sacrificed for us. This is unique in all of world religion. This is inhuman. No human being would dream this up. No human being would dream up the concept of grace, of sacrificial love, of God sacrificing himself in the person of Jesus Christ to save us. Why, even the concept of the Trinity that seems so difficult for us to appreciate, that God is one God in three persons, actually makes our salvation possible because the Father can ask the Son, would you be willing to veil your glory? Would you be willing to come to earth? Would you be willing to become one of these creatures, become a real, true full human being yet without sin? Would you be willing to live a perfect life in order to fulfill the law? Would you be willing to lay down your life to make it possible for me to forgive these people upon whom I've set my love? He has to be fully human to identify with us to be our faithful high priest. He has to be a human being to even die. He can't die unless he's human. But he has to be the God-man in order for his sacrifice to be invaluable. To be able to pay for not just one other person. If one man were to die for another person, it would be a one-for-one -one exchange. But that the value of his death would be infinite and would pay the debt for as many as would be willing to believe. This gospel of God's grace is hard on us, and we are so susceptible to adding to it and saying, how can I contribute to motivate you to love me? Our initial salvation of justification, being declared righteous, not guilty in God's courtroom, is by God's grace. Our sanctification, the means by which he makes our practice increasingly more holy and more Christ-like, is again not by works, but by grace, by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit within us. In fact, we could go so far as to say nothing God does for us is because we have motivated him to do that by performing so well that he is so pleased with us that we would say, there, now you will answer my prayer. There, now you will be pleased with me. No, that's not how it works. Everything that God gives us is gracious, undeserved. And that's why Paul has gone ballistic here. That's why this is important. He says, don't mess with the gospel. 
don't believe this thought. Listen to his tone. Paul, an apostle, he so clearly describes himself that he has been picked by Jesus Christ to be an ambassador for him. It's true, the original apostles were those that walked with Jesus. And as they sought to replace Judas Iscariot, they sought to be picking a person who had walked with Jesus his entire three years on earth and had actually been a witness of his resurrection. Well, it wasn't Paul's choice. Paul was actually a persecutor of Jesus Christ. He was hunting down Christians and arresting them and testifying against them, getting them in prison, trying to get them executed. And Jesus knocked him to the ground, blinded at them, and said, why are you persecuting me? And then the Lord took him off into Arabia and worked with him and taught him the one true gospel. And so Paul says, I'm not an apostle because someone else picked me, not on the agency of man at all. Jesus Christ himself picked me. My authority comes through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. This, perhaps the earliest epistle in the New Testament, places Jesus Christ as equal with the Father, the second person of the Trinity, the resurrected Lord, who has demonstrated his power over death and his right to give us life in resurrection through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches at Galatia. He doesn't need to name people. Normally he does. He, he normally names one of the young men with him, like a Timothy or a Titus. He'll name his amanuensis and say, this person is helping me. No, he doesn't want to imply that his gospel needs any support at all. And so it's terse when he says, all the brethren with me greet you. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is his normal greeting, and they certainly do need his grace. Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins. God the Father's will wasn't to punish us forever, but to save us at infinite cost to himself. And Jesus voluntarily became one of us to die in our place as our substitute to pay the penalty for our sins. He gave himself for our sins as our substitute, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. The Galatians are in danger of slipping back into worldliness, into the evil of this age. The more we try to manipulate God by our performance, I'm not saying we don't seek to please God. I'm not saying that we don't obey Him. What I'm saying is seek to manipulate Him to treat us better by our performance, that we say, I'll do this so my life's easier. I'll do this so you're nicer to me. I'll do this so that you'll answer this prayer request I have. Do you know that some of us actually say to ourselves, I want to ask God for something, but I haven't been good enough. And so what I'll do is I'll be really good for a week, then I'll ask him, and I'll say, look how well I performed this week. Now give me what I ask. What is wrong with us? We don't manipulate God. God is gentle and kind and gracious to us. Everything he gives us is out of his grace. 
Nothing that we have earned. Verse 5, all glory forevermore belongs to God alone. Salvation is his plan. We contribute nothing. Verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. This term desert means it's a military revolt. It's like a mutiny. And you're not just deserting an idea. You're not going AWOL on an idea. You're deserting the person of Jesus Christ. This is a personal thing. He died in your place. It's not a movement that you're leaving. It's the person of Jesus Christ who died in your place. That You're turning your back on him and you're saying, I'll help you by keeping the law. I'll help you by accepting circumcision. I'll help you by changing my diet. No, he called you by the grace of Jesus Christ. You've picked a different gospel. And then he pauses and says, wait a second, there's, there's not more than one gospel. There is only one true gospel. And so he says, verse 7, which is not really another only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That term, to disturb, means that you're completely shaken and agitated. When we lived in the Midwest for 23 years, we had tornadoes and we got used to them to the point where we weren't scared. Homes were built with shelters in the basement, usually surrounded by concrete uh, in our big building at the college, uh, we had tunnels underneath it, and we'd go down and hide in the tunnels. And when we came back to California, uh, my sons that had grown up in Iowa had not yet experienced an earthquake, and they did not fear tornadoes. They were getting used to that, but an earthquake seemed a little scary. We did have an earthquake not long after uh, we arrived. And it wasn't that the earthquake was so big, it's just that the epicenter was so close. The epicenter was like a mile and a half uh, from our house. And so our house shook well. We were all sitting on the couch watching TV in the evening, and <clears throat> next to the TV there was a series of bookshelves, and there were vases on that. And the first thing we noticed is the vase fell over and, and hit the carpet. Thankfully, the carpet was soft. The vase didn't break. There was a vase on my dresser drawer in the bedroom. I could hear that crashing down. Again, it hit the carpet and didn't break. But in my office, where there are all those books on those shelves, those tumbled down. The, the entire set of books just came crashing down. So one of my sons, I'll, I'll let him remain nameless so we don't uh, embarrass him too much, jumped up and did exactly what they teach you in school. He ran for the table and got under the table and protected himself from things falling from the ceiling. The other three of us, the other son, my wife and me, just sat there not moving at all. It seemed like the shaking was shaking, but nothing was hitting us, and we just waited it out there. But the son that was under the table was like calling us, you're supposed to get under the table. <laughs> It is interesting, and when we had the, the more recent quake that was so far away that it would take almost a minute for the rumblings to reach all the way down here where we live, uh, 
those were long and those were rolling and you began to say, this is uncomfortable, I do not like this, this is getting really scary. It's this kind of concept that he's using when he says, there are some who are shaking you, agitating you because they want to. Now notice this is an explicit desire. They know they're distorting the gospel and they're doing it anyway. They're seeking to warp the gospel of Christ. They know there's only one way. They know what the gospel is, and they're rejecting it. And they're saying, no, you must add to the gospel performance by keeping this law that has been so dear to us for so long. And you say, how can we be so susceptible to this? And I tell you this, and I mean this sincerely, we have to keep saying to ourselves, grace is a godly concept that is foreign to us. We are not naturally gracious people. Okay, I'm back at the college. I'm, I'm teaching. And we not only have uh, freshmen coming in, you know, 18-year-olds, we have some people who've done bachelor's degrees somewhere else and want to come and get a Bible certificate. So they're now uh, five years out of high school. One had come from an Ivy League school to study with us. And as uh, as I was teaching him in, in my classes, uh, I befriended him, and we were able to talk quite openly with each other. And he was exhorting me that I was being too kind and generous to my students by accepting late work. So if you turn in a paper to me late, I'd say, well, first day late, 6% down, 3% every additional day. So I said, if something horrible is happening in your life and you can't turn the paper in on time, if it's just one, two, three days late, it's not going to make a huge difference. That's about a letter grade or so. But just get it into me. And he was saying, you know, in the Ivy Leagues, there is no mercy. It is due on the hour that it is due, and no late work is accepted. You're being too gracious. And I said to him, hey, when I was going through school, I usually turned everything on time, but sometimes there were extenuating circumstances in my life and I would turn in something late and my profs were gracious to me. Yes, they took off points, but they still accepted the work. So I said, I want to return the favor. Other profs were gracious to me in my education. I want to be gracious to my students. He didn't like that at all. He disagreed with me entirely. All right, so he goes all the way through the semester, and we change the schedule for final exams because it takes two hours at times to take a final exam. And so whereas you're used to going to class on a certain day at a certain time, the final exam schedule is completely different, and it's published. I'm in the class giving the final exam. He does not show. I said to the class, does anybody know where he is? They go, yeah, he's in the dining hall eating breakfast. And I said, this will be interesting. <clears throat> so they all took the exam. I went back up to my office, and I actually left my door ajar because I assumed he'll soon realize his mistake, and he'll come bursting through the door. And that's exactly what happened. He burst through the door. The first words out of his mouth were, go ahead and flunk me. Well, at least he's consistent. At least, at least he's saying, I don't believe in grace. I don't deserve grace, and therefore, flunk me. I said, I'm not going to flunk you. I have the exam right here waiting for you. 
I know you didn't do this on purpose. I know you weren't studying longer. I know you were just eating breakfast. You were just mistaken because of the change in the schedule. I'm happy to give you the exam now. And he went on trying to protest that it was unfair for me to express grace to him. All right, let's just think about this for a moment. Is it unfair to give a person grace that they do not deserve? In a sense, it is. In a sense, it is, unless you have the right and the desire to extend grace to someone. We have some policemen here. I, in my past, have received some speeding tickets, and I befriended a police officer at one of these Bible conferences, different state, not these police officers. And I said, help me. What is the best way to explain yourself out of a speeding ticket? And he says, oh, that's easy. He goes, this is what you do. You know how we always ask you, do you know why I pulled you over? And I always say, no, officer, why? He says, don't say that. He says, immediately confess. Immediately say, officer, I was speeding. I was wrong. I will not do that again. Please forgive me. I said, really? That's, that's what you do? He goes, yeah. <laughs> so so the, the next time I was returning from a Bible conference trying to get to my home assembly in time for a, a dinner that we were having for the young people. And Iowa is so full of open space you wouldn't believe it if you lived in Los Angeles. You'd have no idea how much open space there is, okay? And I know what the speed limit, the speed limit's 65. And so I keep looking at my watch and I keep saying, I have to go faster, I have to go faster, we're gonna be late. So I kept creeping it up on, on uh, cruise control to where I was at 72 now and calculating, I think we can get there on time. I'm at 72, I'm now seven miles over, but 72. And a police officer, miles ahead of me, turned on his lights. I wasn't even within a mile of him, and he already had his lights. That's how far you can see in Iowa. You can see forever. And you can see that he has got me more than a mile away. I don't even know the technology that allows you to see that far. But he had turned on his lights. So I started slowing down, thinking, like, well, maybe he wants to pull out in front of me and go after someone else. No, no, no. I never even passed him. I ended up pulling up behind him. <coughs> and... And uh, he gets out of the car, and he comes over, and I, he says, do you know why I pulled you over? And I said, yes, officer, I am so very sorry. And I begin to explain the whole story. And he warns me and lets me go. And I'm going like, grace, grace, God's grace. This is wonderful. And what's so interesting is that we would be willing to sometimes accept grace from someone else if we feel we really need it, but we'll turn right around and wring the neck of someone else. Jesus told that story of a man who had an astronomical debt that he could not pay, who immediately goes out and wrings the necks of a person that owed him a pittance compared to that. And they turned him in, and he got what was, delivered, was deserving to him. He says in verse 8, but even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. He's saying, I don't care if it's the angel Moroni. I don't care if it's an angel from heaven. I don't care if I go crazy or senile and I can't say the truth anymore. 
I'm just telling you, there is one true gospel, the gospel of grace, a gift of salvation that we do not deserve. Do not believe him. Let that person be accursed. In English, our translators are very careful not to use the salty language that actually comes through in the way in which the authors of the New Testament write. Uh, they write in a way that really piques your interest because of the strength of the way that they speak to us. The term for accursed is actually an anathema. It is the equivalent, and I say this from the pulpit in true context, it's the equivalent of saying go to hell. It's the equivalent of saying let the person who is willing to believe the gospel contrary to the grace that I taught you be damned to hell forever. And young people, I said that in the context of the scripture itself. I've said that in the context of what Paul is writing to the Galatians. He says in verse 9, As we have said before, so I say again to you now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which we've received, let him be accursed. You'd say, like, well, why does he repeat it? He's trying to say, I'm emphasizing this for clarity. I'm trying to say, I didn't become excessive at that point. I'm not exaggerating here. This is a calmly formed and unalterable command. Do not mess with the gospel. You're going to ruin people's ability to be saved. It's amazing to me how people will make a list on a card of the steps you must go through in order to be saved. 99 times in the Gospel of John, it says believe. 99 times. The lowest common denominator of all the expressions, it also says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. He does use synonyms at times. But the gospel is much more simple in the New Testament than what we make it today. And we, I have studied a number of evangelists who've done arena evangelism, who've done mass evangelism, and seen the lists of the things that they make, of the steps that you must go through in order to be saved. And we hope that people don't get confused, and we hope that people don't say to themselves as they wonder, am I really saved? Did I say it right? We have people who are looking at their lives, probably sin in their lives, and it's confusing them, and they're saying like, well, I think I prayed the sinner's prayer, but I, maybe I didn't get the wording right. Maybe I expressed it incorrectly. What they're thinking is it's like abracadabra secret magic words or something. They're not secret magic words. There's not a rote sinner's prayer that is written out for you that you repeat back to the person who is leading you to Christ. Not necessarily so. And so they, they get confused by, did I say it right? Or they get confused by, did I really, 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 really mean it? 
And so they'll, they'll pray a prayer again and they'll say, this time, if I didn't mean it before, I really mean it now. And we have to be very careful not to put impediments in the way of people coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord. My father-in-law, a missionary uh, for his entire adult life to Bolivia, South America, would uh, evangelize children in a school that he founded, and then in the vacation periods would go out to the rural areas and, and seek to reach people uh, that he couldn't reach in any other way. And he often would find uh, areas where people had interest in the gospel and would share the gospel, and he planted assemblies. So he himself planted about 20, and they had daughter assemblies, so there are about 70 or 80 assemblies in South America, in Bolivia, where uh, there was influence from his evangelism. One of the favorite stories uh, we have of one of uh, the people in one of his favorite areas is that this hacienda owner, uh, who was influential in what would be to us the size of a county, uh, these hacienda owners could say, my property goes from that mountain over here to this mountain over here to this mountain over here. You just go like, this is amazing, the amount of land that a, a single person could have. The woman he married, his first wife, was unable to bear him children, and he felt he needed an heir no matter what uh, in order to inherit his hacienda. And so he looked around for the possibility of one who could bear him children, and his wife's sister was available, and the two women, his sisters, got along very well, and so he married his first wife's sister, and now had two wives, and she did bear him children. So along comes my father-in-law, and he's sharing the gospel with him, and he says, well, I would like to believe, but I can't, because you're going to ask me to give up one of my wives. Now think about that. A lot of people get confused about the offer of salvation and they say, well, I guess I have to clean up my life in advance before God would save me. There's a lot of things I have to do first and then God will save me. As an unbeliever, you have no ability clean up your life. Nor would cleaning up your life as an unbeliever save you. We all come before God as sinners, as rebellious individuals who need the grace of God to save us. And we all come before him with things about our lives that are displeasing to him. And we give ourselves to him humbly, asking for his forgiveness. And by faith, that's the means by how we receive the gift that he offers to us. And faith itself is not a work. Uh, faith is just belief. Faith is trusting him for the offer he's made. If you will entrust yourself to Jesus Christ, if you will believe Jesus Christ and his offer, you can be saved. And here's the sad part. It just, again, shows what we as human beings are like. My father-in-law said, just believe. Entrust yourself to Jesus Christ. And the man refused to do so because he himself had placed an impediment before God and said, I'm not willing 
to give up my two wives, and therefore I'm not willing to accept your offer of salvation. It's not until we're saved that our hearts are changed. It's not until we're saved that God changes our desires. It's not until we're saved that God begins to sanctify us and make us more like Christ. This goes on in chapter 3 of Galatians. He talks a lot about how they've mixed up the whole process of sanctification and thought that that too was by works, which it is not. It is a gift of God, the gracious care of God to change our lives, to change our hearts, to change our desires, to work with us, to live in a Christ-like manner. Paul ends this section by saying, why am I so unpopular? If I were trying to make the gospel acceptable to anyone, I would be popular. But I'm not. He says, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. We have to stand up for the truth of the gospel and not mess with it. And we let God be God, and we let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. And we realize that when we're sharing the gospel with someone, we're cooperating with the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we are in sh short contact with God saying, as we're sharing the gospel with someone else, what would you like me to say to him? What would you like me to read to him from your word? How could I be helpful to him? Because it's your spirit who convicts us of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And I want to cooperate with your spirit. Help me be a vehicle by which this person can freely choose Jesus Christ alone. Tonight, when we get together, we'll talk more about the book of Galatians. We'll look at it as a whole, and we will look at uh, the themes that are developed in the book of Galatians. But this morning, it's the gospel is God's grace to us. It's an inhuman attribute of God. His sacrificial love for us is inhuman. But that's the beauty of the gift and the offer that he makes to us. Oh, Father, we come before you and thank you for the simplicity of the gospel message. How clearly... And repeatedly you have offered it to us. Oh, Father, we ask uh, that we would be pleasing to you as we search the scriptures to see what your word says. That we would hear the apostle so clearly say that it's nothing that we do that earns our salvation. It was earned by Jesus Christ. He is the one that took our place. He's the one that paid our penalty, the penalty we could not pay. Our debt is now canceled. We are declared not guilty. You've declared us righteous. That righteousness is not anything that we've earned. This is Christ's righteousness that has been credited to our account. And we pray, Father, that we would learn to accept your grace and treat others with grace as you've treated us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.